the Convention Collective at Lakes International Comic Art Festival 2022. Greg Rucker Panel, Mightier Than The Sword. favourite writer of mine and, uh, you know, someone I've been wanting to talk to for a while. So uh, I hope you enjoy our chat as much as uh, yeah. I'm about to. Well, I'm glad to be here. Yes. Thank, Thank you all for uh, taking the long walk. <laughs> <laughs> I needed the extra hour to find the location. The map was very confusing. So. Okay, so um, I, I always like to kind of start at the very beginning and, and get back to an idea of, of who people are. So I guess returning to your roots, what kind of a kid were you? Like I, I read a, a story about you finding comics in the form of digests or something at a market. Yeah, I, what sort of kid was I? Um, pretty miserable, I guess. Um, I, I grew up in a... Um, I grew up in a farming community on the central coast of California, uh, sort of in between literally a farm town in Monterey, California, which in recent years has become um, very bougie and, and high rent, but back then was not yet. And my father uh, was a, uh, in the United States, I don't know, I don't know if it's the same. Um, in, in Europe or in Australia, um, he, he was uh, a workers' compensation sort of personal injury attorney, um, which is pejoratively referred to by some as an ambulance chaser. My father represented primarily migrant labor um, and sort of the, the people who would work. There was a Firestone Tire Factory in a nearby community called Spreckles, and um, they knowingly poisoned their workers uh, in the process of making a particular brand of tire. They would use a chemical called benzene. Um, so, like, my father was representing workers and things like that. And my mom um, <clears throat> had trained as a journalist, and then uh, when she had my older sister, as Down syndrome, it sort of disrupted any career trajectory there and sort of reoriented her. So just from that, you get, uh, and my father incidentally uh, was dyslexic. So, uh, and, and there's a whole story there about like dyslexia and how he ends up actually being a fairly prominent attorney in what he does. But so I'm raised in this um, very politically active, politically aware, liberal, um, you know, we're, we're middle-class Jews um, and we're Democrats in a pretty, you know, conservative, Republican, um, and not terribly tolerant community. So, you know, I was raised around books. I was raised knowing that writing was a thing people did because mm -hmm. my father would dictate, my mom would be typing all the time. Um, so it wasn't a, um, it, it, it wasn't a mysterious or magical thing to me. It was something people did 
Um, so as a result, I, I would write, you know, not knowing any better, not knowing that there was a version of the world that says that's actually not something you should just be doing. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it wasn't the best childhood. I mean, I suppose you know you can you can guess with that sort of uh, rough sketch uh, how well I got on with my peers. So, um, so, so then was reading and and I guess <coughs> the, the writing, as you said, and comics were they a form of escape for oh, you? Oh, absolutely. I was I was reading very early. I didn't fall in love with comics in the way. You know, Michael Lark, I don't know if he was threatening to show up. I don't know if he's here. Um, Michael commented yesterday, you know, that he wasn't a comics fan growing up. And for me, like, the first comics I really remember finding were these little digest, black and white, Archie um, and Veronica, and then um, reprints of the early Kirby Lee, like the first five issues of The Incredible Hulk the first five issues of The Amazing Spider-Man and so on. And I loved those for what they were, but it wasn't as if those themselves were transformative works for me. Yeah. My sister, as I said, had Downs, and I'm 52. When I was a kid, uh, the Incredible Hulk television show was on TV with Bill Bixby and Lou Ferrigno. Mm -hmm. And my sister was madly in love with the Hulk. And for her, there was no differentiation, right? She understood Mm -hmm. that both Bixby and Farina were the Hulk. And if you think about it from a Downs point of view, and I have thought about this a lot, it makes perfect sense, right? Here is, if you know the show, the sweetest, kindest, gentlest man who, when somebody else is threatened, turns into this great, huge pillar of rage that never hurts anybody who doesn't deserve it, right? Um, Talk about the perfect guy. So when I was about 11, maybe, I found a comic book store in Monterey, California that had just opened, and they were selling, and I remember this acutely, um, there was an Incredible Hulk magazine Mm -hmm. that Marvel put out about the time of the show. And the stories were written by uh, Doug Mensch, and they would have a Moon Knight backup. And I picked up one thinking that my sister would like it, and she had no interest in it at all, because <laughs> that's not the thing she loved. But I remember taking it to school with me and, um, and, and, and spending afternoons trying to copy panels, mm. and that was when I discovered I could not draw. Uh, <laughs> to save my life, just can't do it. I cannot do it. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting because I read a little bit about, you know, those early stories where you mentioned Hulk specifically, and yet you've not actually done the sort of a, a Hulk run. No, and, and see, that, it, it, he's really the only one I never got my grubby little mitts on. Yeah. <laughs> so. Is it that you did actually want to do something with him, or, or you're actually like, no, this isn't part of my DNA or makeup at the end? I, I hmm, that's an interesting question. Because it, it, it's actually fairly complicated. My relationship with Marvel was never a great one. Mm-hmm. Um, there was early in my career a moment where they sort of said, come to us. And I sort of dipped my toe in their waters. But 
Marvel characters have never spoken to me as passionately as the DC characters. That was one. The social, professional side of things at Marvel at that time was one that I didn't fit into. Mm. And there is an element of, especially at that time and especially at Marvel, there was this very much old boys kind of, hey, we're going to go drink and go to strip clubs. And and that's just never been me. Mm. Um, And I, I didn't quite fit in. So there was that, and then what happened was, uh, here, do Wolverine, and you're listening to the only guy who took Wolverine out of the top ten of the American market. That's me. (laughs) I did that. And I say that proudly, right? Um, And they've just, they've never known what to do with me. So every now and then they'll come across, you know, they'll say, would you like to? And if I have an idea, I'll say, yeah. Um, Hulk was never offered to me. Captain America was offered to me at one point and I would have loved to have gotten to do that mm-hmm. and I got into a bake-off with the editor at the time was Stuart Moore and he had me and, and by bake-off I mean quite literally you write a script, somebody else will write a script and we'll decide which of you would prefer and I lost out that's the only gig in comics that I didn't get that I really wanted and then the only ones I've been fired from are uniformly Marvel gigs, with the exception of Wonder Woman. I got fired from Wonder Woman. So. so then, you know, you sort of touched on it there, but is it more than company culture that made you resonate and, and sort of click with DC? Yeah. Or was it, you know, what about the, the characters? Did you, it sounds like you came to them maybe later on. So, um, it's interesting. I have a theory... And, and, and I'm not sure it's a good theory, so you can all puncture as many holes in it as you like. I think one of the things that makes the Marvel Universe so compelling is that it is an adolescence universe, right? It's very much a <clears throat> universe built on, you don't understand me, um, and, and grown-ups suck, and I, I don't fit in anywhere. And that sounds pejorative. There's a legitimacy to that kind of literature, right? That storytelling the rebellion storytelling has its point. Mm -hmm. And the true power of almost every one of the Marvel characters with a few notable uh, exceptions, like Captain America, are uniformly heroes despite themselves. They would rather be doing anything else, right? Like, the whole Peter Parker conflict is, I would much rather go out on a date with Mary Jane, but... I have to stop the Green Goblin from murdering people. Right? Yeah, I, I understand. It sucks. I would much prefer to, you know, be able to hold down my job uh, than have to, you know, stop Doc Ock. Marvel, so, so DC conversely in the main, until really Dan DiDio came along, was a universe that was very much about you do the right thing because it's the right thing to do. And that's what you get when you build a universe on Superman, right? So all issues of American exceptionalism aside, if you have an individual, male or female, who is, in theory, right? And this is the beauty of Superman. Superman, Clark Kent can crash into the, quote, heartland anywhere, right? It doesn't have to be Kansas. 
right? It could be in England, it could be in Poland. In theory, it could be anywhere. As long as that child is raised by a family that loves him, that teaches unironically that we do the best for others, we take responsibility for ourselves, we want to help, we are honest, we work hard, right? If, if you imbue those traits into somebody with Superman's powers, you get a Superman. You get somebody who's like, I will do the right thing because I have the ability to do it. It's incumbent upon me to, right? Um, and of course, the thing that makes Superman resonant and the thing that makes Batman resonant, resonant and Wonder Woman resonant is that there's an inherent pathos in these things, which is the call to do the right thing, similarly to Spider-Man, right, prevents them from living a life that is uh, uh, about their own personal happiness. Because there is no Superman, that's Clark Kent. It's just the guy without the glasses and wearing the suit, right? And he would love nothing more than to be able to just be a guy, but he has a responsibility. Bruce Wayne, all you got to do is, you know, <laughs> murder an eight-year-old's parents in front of him anywhere in the world, and as long as he's got a big enough fortune, you get a kid who says, I'm never, ever letting that happen to anybody else. And that's the core motivation of, uh, uh, of Batman, right, is that he's going to go out every night trying to save an eight-year-old kid, and every night he will fail because he cannot be everywhere at once, but he does it anyway, over and over again, and that is inherently heroic, right? And it's also inherently tragic. With Diana, and this is where her origin gets screwed up time and time again, she, because if she doesn't, if she can go back to Themyscira, she has not sacrificed anything. And all of these characters are about sacrifice. And those are the things that speak to me. So I, uh, for a long time, felt, I was like, you know, Marvel characters whine too much. They just spend way too much time complaining. And the, like I say, there's legitimacy in that. That's not to discount them. What I find really ironic, just say, I told you I give long answers. Yeah. yeah what I find really ironic is that the Marvel movies do a better job of embracing the heroism in the main. You don't want to read them too deeply. You read them too deeply and, and you find some really alarming things. But Warner Brothers DC movies are almost universally about the fact that people suck and it sucks to have to help them. It's like, if you make a Superman movie where Superman's a dick, you screwed up. If you've made a Superman movie where you can't bring an eight-year-old to see it, if you make a Superman movie where in the weeks following it, there are not a rash of emergency and casualty visits from kids who jumped off of things they had no business jumping off of with a blanket around their shoulders. You have done it wrong, right? There should be a precipitous spike in broken legs after a good Superman movie. Um, and it is not lost on me that what I think the continued failure of the Warner Brothers 
franchise is that instead of embracing those things, what they're trying to do over and over again is demean them and reduce them. And we could get into a huge sidebar about how you don't give a libertarian Superman um, and then act surprised when he kills people. Um, but I do think it is noteworthy that the most successful DC movie is a Joker movie that is effectively a textbook saying, the incels are right, brown people and women suck. That's their most successful movie. That's problematic. Like, their most successful movie is about the villain that nobody should want to emulate. Right? The Joker is supposed to be as bad as it comes. Um, but wow, they knocked that one out of the park, apparently. So, so do, I mean, do you think that is a DC particular thing and it suits them of their films now or do you think it's a bit more about the narrative that people are actually looking for for better or definitely worse in the world now? I don't think I don't think it's the latter I think people audiences um, audiences only have one voice and that's how they spend their money mm-hmm. and if all I am offering you as an audience is hot dog or hamburger and you're hungry you're only going to get hot dog or hamburger because I'm not saying you can have a cheese toastie I'm not it's just not on the menu you're screwed right so if you're looking for that entertainment out there you'll, you, you are limited the corporate there are a lot of things that go into this. One, Warner Brothers is an auteurs studio, which is problematic to begin with. Um, Warner Brothers, and if you look at their movies, you will see this, right? They invariably go, here's a director, they have a concept, we're going to let them do what they want. There is no authorial or editorial voice there. There's a reason Clint Eastwood's movies are all Warner Brothers movies, right? There's a reason Nolan's movies are all Warner Brothers movies. This is what happens when you turn to Zack Snyder and you say, you can have the DC Universe. He says, great, we're doing it my way. It's like, yeah, but you're not the guy to do it. <laughs> you're a reprehensible human being who believes things that are antithetical. To, you literally cannot be a libertarian and believe in Superman. You cannot subscribe to a political philosophy that says, right, you got to do it yourself. It's all about what you get. No handouts. No charity, no compassion, right? If you are a Randian, Superman's antithetical. Who'd they give Superman to? A junk. I mean, it's, it, it, you get the car crash, right? That, that you, you, it's not a mystery how these things go wrong. So that's part of it, right? Part of it is that Warner Brothers <coughs> handed over. The other thing is Warner Brothers decided that the way to define themselves against the success of Disney slash Marvel was by saying, we're going to be adult, right? And by adult, they meant needlessly grim and violent, right? They mistake um, darkness for maturity, right? And, it, it, and, it's, and, and, and it's a sloppy, easy mistake, and you see writers do this all the time. Right, it's low-hanging fruit. I want it to be serious. I'll have somebody raped. 
Like, you know what? <laughs> the idea can be serious, right? You have to engage with respect and sincerity. Um, and they're very bad at that. So you get those things, and then, like I said, going back to here, do you want a hot dog or a hamburger? It's like, well, what are my choices here? I would really prefer ice cream. There, I don't know if, uh, if, if Paramount Plus is available now. Do you, are you guys getting um, uh, Strange New Worlds? Has anybody seen Strange New Worlds? Okay, I think Strange New Worlds is remarkable, and I say this as somebody who's committed to sin and really, in the last several years, has come to recognize it because if you know Lazarus cycles up past here, you know I, I I have written some grim takes on the future. Strange New Worlds is beautiful. They're beautifully done, and they're not the mystic. They, they are returned to the Roddenberry core belief in a better future. And if you look around at entertainment and literature in the main right now, we have been fed for over 20 years narratives that say, eh, it all sucks and you're going to die. You can't make it better. Literally, over and over again. There is no point, right? The climate's gone. I mean, you can't, well, why bother, right? And the people who can do every, anything about it, they're already, they, they, they don't care about you. They're building bunkers in New Zealand and planning to live on Mars. Right? That's the future that we now live in. And art, and in particular speculative fiction, is about looking to the futures we can create. This is why representation matters so much. Mm. Right? Because if you're never seeing you know, queer couples, if you're never seeing women, if you're never seeing just a broad range of ethnicities or religion, then what you are seeing is a future that says that those people don't exist in it. Right? They're gone. They, they have nothing to contribute. And that's garbage. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's terribly dangerous. So I have reached... Like you've asked two questions, and they're like, Jesus Christ, does this guy ever shut up? Um, yeah, I, I hit a point a couple years ago where I was like, oh, I'm guilty of this too. Because I get it. They're, they're, when you were living in darkness, you kind of want to purge it. And that's not to say we should only tell stories that have happy endings. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying that we need to tell stories that talk about the struggles they don't have to be literal, right? We don't. I'm not saying every every story has to be about addressing climate change and the battle to 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 save the planet. But what I am saying is that if we only tell stories where the end is nihilistic, I mean, what a horrible lesson to to hand to our children to carry forth. That's just that's bleak. Right? And like I say, if you haven't seen Strange New Worlds, see Strange New Worlds. Because you will see what I think is some beautifully done storytelling. It's done sequentially, but each episode stands on its own. And it balances some very serious, moving drama with... I mean, there's a, there's a Freaky Friday episode uh, called Spock Amok that is just a hoot and a holler, you know? And it is important 
like I say, this is if we don't see these things, if we don't offer them, then how do people know what they want? And Strange New Worlds did incredibly well. Mm. Like it did so well because somebody over at Paramount slash CBS said, hey, I got an idea, let's do an optimistic one. <laughs> and they somehow rammed that through. And having done now recent work in Hollywood, that's a hard sell. Right? Because the only thing Hollywood cares about is making money. And if they could get you just to buy stuff without ever having to make anything, that would be ideal for them. But since you're too smart for that, they go, well, we have to make something. So then they go, we have to make a thing that will sell. What will sell? And the way we determine that is by what has sold. And what has sold has been hot dog or hamburger. Hmm. We never offered anybody melon. So we can't tell if it sells or not. And it's too risky. What happens if they don't like melon? So, so I mean, hearing you talk about... Um storytelling and the importance of that it's obviously very passionate about that and, and what I, you were offering I am opinionated, yes. <laughs> and, and you know then coming back to where, where we started with that where you were talking about where the DC heroes kind of resonated with you of yeah. being innately good and, and seeing that you know I, when I look at your sort of history you had all these different jobs before you really settled into writing so was yeah. that kind of your realization of what you could do to bring good into the world was to, to become a writer, essentially? I became a writer because I couldn't do anything else. Um, and, and it sounds like a joke. It's not. It's... Um, the, the glib response is I think writing is an illness. I don't think it's a profession. Um, I, I think... We, we get this sounds pretentious and it gets into all sorts of weird nuance. I went to university and I really, and this is embarrassing to admit, um, sitting here, uh, I went to university with the intention of being the first American director at the RSC. Right? That was I was going to, I was going to direct. Um, and I did theater for about a year and a half, <clears throat> and I had uh, a great experience um, early in my second year in this program with a wonderful instructor who, you know, this first day of class had us all doing what monologues had you memorized for your auditions. And me being, you know, 19 and full of myself had, uh, as an audition piece, <laughs> was doing Richard's uh, dream speech from Richard III. And this professor kicked my ass in front of a class. There were like 12 of us. Because I was willing to go out there and do that. That's the one thing. I'm always willing to make a fool out of myself. So she worked me for a good 45 minutes. And by the time we were done, I was amazing. I was so good. And I left that class going, I don't want to work that hard. <laughs> don't like I don't I didn't like actors enough to put in the blood sweat and tears that would be required to maintain and improve right mm. but what I did discover fairly closely thereafter was that I'd just been writing I was always writing that was the thing I was doing and when I had instructors who said you know, this is not enough. You have to do this better. 
I could answer that. I could work that hard. So, you know, I, I trained as, uh, as an ambulance technician, as an EMT, primarily as a fallback job, right? Because people are always going to need to go to the hospital, right? I mean, you got to figure if there's a job that's guaranteed to get you hired, it's EMT. Um, and, you know, I did a graduate program in writing that was beneficial for two reasons, neither of which were um, because of the courses, but it was rather because it was putting me in an environment where I had no excuse to do anything but write, and it got me my first literary agent. Um, And then after that, it was every job I took was... um, it was a job to allow me to do my work, and my work mm. was to write. Mm. So, what they say to sort of write what you know, and if you look at something like the Atlas Kodiak books that yeah. you started with, that feels like a, a kind of a straight example of that. Yeah. Um, when you set out to do them, was it that you were trying to create a series or a thing, or was it more that you wrote a book and it was like, wait, I, more? I, I very mm. deliberately. So the interesting thing about the Kodiak novels is that um, that they're an example of not thinking things through. <laughs> I I had actually this is too much information, but I'll share it anyway. Um, when I was leaving university, my senior year in the English department you had to produce a senior thesis and I went into my senior year thinking that I was going to be doing a critical analysis of the American private investigator novel because I feel very strongly about that genre um, as a means of social commentary um, I think it is, a, it is a uniquely American genre in the way that jazz is like you know this is not the uh, this is not to take anything from, say, Doyle and Holmes, but to say, look, you, you, you get Dupont is, you know, created by Poe. Poe is definitively an American writer, right after the fact that he lies about everything about himself. Um, so I, I, I thought I was going to do this very critical work, and I had always loved the private eye novel for this reason. I think it's a beautiful... Um, it's a beautiful instrument by which we can talk about society. Um, and instead, I found myself in this fiction writing thesis suddenly. So, I, I had always wanted to write a private eye. Mm-hmm. So, Atticus was meant to be a PI. It was going to be my series private investigator. But I wanted to do something a little different. So, I was like, well, maybe he's not a private eye. He's in personal protection. He's, he's, a, he's a PSA. He's a bodyguard. Um, and then me being me, I did the research and discovered, oh, this is a whole untapped vein. But the second you do that, you change the nature of the novel. Um, a private investigator story is inherently a mystery. You are hired to do X. And the journey to X is the narrative. 
if you hire a PSA, the job is primarily going to be to protect X. Definitionally, you are now writing suspense. Something has to go wrong. And the question is when, because otherwise it's an incredibly dull novel, right? Like a, a, a good bodyguard, nothing happens, right? It's gonna be like watching paint dry. That may be a success professionally, in the fiction marketplace, that's a car crash, right? It's, it was 100,000 words of boring. Um, so that was, I found I could write about things, right? Um, the last Kodiak novel that was published, Walking Dead, um, and please note, not The Walking Dead, but Walking Dead, um, you know, it was about human trafficking. Um, and so, so the opportunity to, to really shine a lens on the world and, 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 and call things out existed, but it existed in a different way. So in, in terms of obviously, so you're writing prose, that's, that's coming along and, and you're being critically acclaimed there. Mm. You, how, how does it translate to then suddenly writing comics because uh, you know it seems that Whiteout comes out of nowhere but there must be yeah. a, a lot of uh, things that led well, to that I had wanted to write comics in college and I had had a friend who was uh, an illustrator and we were going to do a comic and I wrote the first two issues and he drew half of the first issue and then told me it was too much work um, and he wasn't wrong um, so I I and, and the other thing that had happened in college, and this is important because it talked about, you know, I got to high school and I fell in with some Marvel zombies and, you know, I was reading X-Men. That led me to the comic book stores to find things on my own. So I found um, the Miller Master Kelly Daredevil run by myself, right? Those were revelatory. And I also was, you know, at that age was also this renaissance in, 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 in the form, that was when you get Longbow Hunters, you get Watchmen, you get Dark Knight, you get Batman Year One, um, you get Matt Wagner, Grendel, and also Mage, you get just a, a, a it really was a renaissance. Mm -hmm. And that was very exciting to me, and then I got to college, and then Denny O'Neill is doing the question. And Denny's question is probably the most significant comic to me solely because my best friend who I had met at university was a psych major and it was he who pointed out that Denny names, renames Charlie after um, the psychiatrist, psychologist uh, Charles Zaz who is the author of a book called The Myth of Mental Illness. And basically the thesis of The Myth of Mental Illness is there is no such thing as crazy, there is only behavior that society deems as unacceptable and labels as such. Right? Now, right or wrong, and, and, and I would argue wrong, we know, like, medically, chemically, things are happening in some people's heads. Right? But... That was the thesis that Denny was writing from, and realizing that, and going like, "Wait, wait a minute! This whole run is about this." 
and also about Denny near, nearly dying, right, and him grappling with this lifestyle change that he has to go through now because of the heart attack. And yeah, that was that was a really important work for me. Mm. And and so that is what sort of inspired you to then want to yeah. participate in comics because that's the interesting twist as well, at least as a reader. As I was saying, Atticus Kodiak is a little more, feels a bit more right what you know and, and incorporating your experience. When you come to something like White Out and loads of... Yeah, I clearly sense, don't know. <laughs> well, for a start, the, the character's a woman, so you put yeah. yourself into an entirely different mindset and set of shoes, potentially. Well... And then the scenario. Okay, so there are two things there. I mean, the first is, I, I like research, and I researched the living hell out of White Out. Like, White Out came about because my literary agent at that time said to me, did you know there's a federal marshal stationed in Antarctica? And my first thought was, what do you do wrong to get that job? <laughs> like, who did you piss off? Right? They're, they're like, you? South Pole. Um, I, carry right, the main character of White Out and White Out Melt, was actually a character I wrote in graduate school for a one-act play. I did for a class um, called Work Ethic, where I needed a federal marshal or deputy marshal, and, and she was that character. I, on some level, hadn't overtly yet. I hadn't realized, and I don't think I really realized it until I sat down to write um, Shooting at Midnight, which is the fourth Kodiak novel, I believe. Is it the fourth? Fourth or fifth? Um, I have always been drawn to uh, female protagonists. Right. I've always been drawn to narratives where women are in the lead. And we don't have the time to go into why that is. Um, and I'm not sure I can answer definitively. Mm -hmm. I will say that simply from a writing point of view, bearing in mind I am 52, and people were acting like I had invented the wheel when I was first doing this. Like, oh my God, here's a guy who's writing women well. It's not that hard. Just take some thought and consideration and care. Mm -hmm. Right? Um... One of the immediate dividends you get is, and we talk again about representation, all of the, you know, I said yesterday, Fitzgerald says there are two stories. There's Cinderella, and there's Jack and the Beanstalk, and, any, and it's all about how you dress them up. Mm -hmm. Well, <clears throat> if you dress up those narratives and you flip the gender of the protagonist, and you do it honestly, like really considering everything that that now impacts, you have an entirely different story. These are entirely different. We, you can see the same thing, right? It's the same story, but it's now through a different lens. So when I really sat down to do it, quote, right, which was shooting at midnight, I spent a lot of time going, how am I going to write a convincing first-person POV <laughs> from the point of view of this Bronx Catholic, Irish Catholic girl that I'm not, I'm definitively not. Mm. And 
there wasn't a secret to it. There was me asking a lot of questions to the women I knew and having them question me and having them gut check me. But it was a very natural um, evolution for me. I, 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 it was going to happen. Um, and pretty much I haven't looked back. I mean, Michael, for my 50th birthday, drew me a piece that he called Greg, Greg's Women. And, <clears throat> and it is literally like Rowan, Forever, Renee, Kate, Diana, Eight. And I forget, there's one other. And it's all women. And one decks, right? And it's just all of them coming out of a, a, a football match. I mean, out of a soccer match in, in Portland. And, uh, and I've actually had my literary agent on more than one occasion say, can you try writing a guy again? And it's like, I'm not really that interesting. I know guy. I am guy. I can do guy. Um, it's not... Not where I'm inclined to go. Right, and it's it's interesting because it's again. I know you sort of said we don't have the time to exactly get into it, but I just want to scratch a little bit there because there is that By thing. All means. I, I feel like if I'm right, next year would be the 25th anniversary of a whiteout. Yeah, I think so. So you've been sort of on this particular vein for a while, but also if we think back, we kind of go, oh, well, we're getting a lot of progress in comics these days, but actually 25 years ago that wasn't happening. Yeah. And and so people go, well, why weren't women writing women? And it was like they, they weren't able to. Yeah. You know, it, it almost because, took a man... Because women couldn't get the gig. Yeah, yeah. It, it kind of took a man to be able to write a woman. And what it takes me back to, and... Um, it, again, it's not the, the best example or the best done, but you had uh, Don McGregor doing Black Panther on Jungle Action, mm -hmm. not because he was a black man or qualified to do it, but there wasn't anyone else that could. And it was a, a very naive attempt, I think, at, at representation, whereas what you were doing was potentially a more sophisticated attempt at the same thing. Maybe. I mean, I, I certainly... It was never meant to be gimmicky. It was always meant to be this is the story that I see. You know, Whiteout is inherently about... You know, the protagonist had to be a woman because one of the first things I found was the ratio of men to women in Antarctica during the season was 1 to 200. It's like, well, how do you not use that in a narrative? How do you not deal with the inherent, you know, sexism and implicit threat that comes with that, right? And it just, it would have been... You can't give a writer a, a, a piece of information like that and have them go, not going to use it. Right? I mean, it's just like, this is too good. You can get, there's so much meat on this bone. I think, um, it's interesting to me how the industry has changed and how far it still has to go. I don't, you know, we get, you, you can get into the dangerous um, waters of who is allowed to write what, if you're not careful. And I, I do not, I do not believe that writers are only allowed to, you, you can only write what you know, because if you do that, then 
either you have to go out and live extraordinary lives all the time and maybe you get one or two good books out of it. Human beings, and again, it goes back to the power of the art, right? We are, the, the thing that allows us to do what we do, and Pratchett, Terry Pratchett talks, talked about this as well, is that we, we are narrative creatures, we tell stories and we can imagine and envision. And that's part of it. The other thing we do is we, we empathize. That's how our society survives. We can sit next to one another and go, I, 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 I get your pain, right? I know what that's like. You fell down, let me help you up. I mean, it is as simple as that, right? The innate urge when somebody takes a topple off a pavement to stop and help them is inherently human, right? And if you then say, if, if you extrapolate from that, you can't write that that you do not live, then it's like, okay, well, then I can't help you up because that wasn't my experience, right? That isn't to say it isn't fraught, and that isn't to say that it, 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 it shouldn't be done with care and respect. It absolutely has to, right? If I am going to write... Um, if, if I'm going to write a, a, a young Muslim woman as a protagonist, it's incumbent on me to know what the hell I'm talking about. Right? I, I do not want to misrepresent. Um, but to imply that because I am not a young Muslim woman, I cannot do it is erroneous and, and, and absurd if you think about it. Because if you do that, then it's like, well, I guess there goes whole genres just disappear. Right? Hope you liked your Tolkien. You don't get that anymore. Right? Gone. Hitchhiker's Guide? Gone. Right? Star Trek? See ya. Star Wars? Bye. Game of Thrones? No way. Right? Because dragons aren't real, guys. You know? Don't say that. So, I, 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 I absolutely get... Um, I absolutely get the place that we're in right now because we're in an interesting place. We've had all these voices excluded for so long mm -hmm. that for those of us who have been included, you know, us, us ostensibly cishet white guys to be working in those lanes as well is arguably not allowing the room. For, for other voices to come in. The, the flip side is, it's a broad tent. Everybody should be able to fit. Yeah. Um, and, and that means that for those of us who have had the privilege of being here, we have to acknowledge that privilege. And we have to acknowledge, in particular, and this has always been the, the key for me, it's, I am really good about uh, admitting the things I don't know. And I don't know so much. <laughs> I mean, I am just staggeringly ignorant in many ways. So, a willingness to learn and be educated is, is, is requisite. So, outside of representation and outside of the fact that you go, this is actually what I enjoy writing, these are the characters I, I like doing, do you ever have any concern or worry that people are like, oh, here comes Greg Rucker with his strong female lead again? You oh, yeah, know, no, I'm a cliche. Yeah, I'm, I'm absolutely a cliche. Um, and I'm also a 52-year-old cliche, so I figure, yeah. I don't, I, I, 
I'm gonna write the stories I want to write, um, and nobody has to read them. No. You know what I mean? If people don't want to read, uh, oh look, you, <laughs> oh look, it's another Rucka lesbian. You know, what I mean? it's like, <laughs> hey, trust me, I know the jokes. Okay, I'm, I'm the writer. Um, you know, I, I. I, I'm not going to apologize for it. And the one good thing I'll say about capitalism is the market does dictate. Yeah. If people don't want it, I won't get published anymore. Um, I think at the end of the day, and I do think my saving grace is this, right? Um, I have never been ashamed of calling myself a political writer. I have never been ashamed of trying to make entertainment about things that are important to me. But I also don't forget it's entertainment. Mm. Nobody wants to be lectured to. Nobody wants to pick up a comic that I wrote and be like, oh, good, Greg's going to shout at me for 22 pages. Right? That's no fun. Right? If, if I can entertain you, if you're engaged, if you want to come along for the story, you know, if, if you care about the characters, then I'm doing my job right. Mm. Um... And, yeah, I'm not going to apologize for it. And I've had, you know, there have been dark times in the career and with comics gate and, you know, things like that. It's, 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 it's I know who hates me. <laughs> I'm real easy to find. It's real easy to look at the old card and go, oh, he's got a gay agenda. It's like, no, he doesn't. The whole purpose, if you know the old guard... I, it literally, when I was putting it together, I was like, I need to make it clear that it isn't a religious thing, mm. right? So, one of them is pre-Christian, right, Andy, 7,000 years old. We've got the two guys who met killing each other in the Crusades, right, and are lovers. So, that, I mean, right there, that was meant to be, see, like, this has nothing to do, you cannot say God is doing because I didn't want God to be a character in the old guard, mm. right? Um, <coughs> yeah. You've kind of touched on it, because old guard is an example of this, but you'd mentioned before about, you know, really, you just want to write characters. You you know, you, you mentioned capitalism. That's all got to factor in, because yeah. you've got to make a living. And there is that point where you know, your career shifted definitely more from writing for others to creator own as being oh, yeah. the, the more direct avenue for you. So, you know, I guess, can you talk a little bit about how that happened and where your mindset was at with that? Uh, I mean, it, the end result, I got there. It took me way too long to get there. I left DC in 2009 after having been miserable at DC since 2005. Um, and when I left, my plan was I, I had all these other things that were going to happen. I was working on these. Every single one of the things I was working on evaporated within a month of me leaving DC. And uh, I, I spent about four years unable to work. Like, it was really bad. Um, I, I, I had uh, suicidal depression. It was, it was very, very dark for a while. And in the midst of all of that, 
And it's funny because I had left DC and, and, and at that time, Image had said, hey, if you ever want to do something with us, let us know. And I was like, yeah, I'll think about it. And I had this thing I wanted to do. It was called Black Magic. Mm-hmm. Michael Lark was going to draw it. I was working on it. He seemed into it. And in, in the midst of all this depression, it kept not happening. Michael was doing Marvel work and I just, I was having a miserable time. And um, the, uh, the Occupy Wall Street protests happened and I remember doing some reading about it and, and in particular reading about the global distri- distribution of wealth that Oxfam list that says these are the wealthiest people in the world, they control this much percentage. And at that time, it was something like 98, 98, this was back in 2011, 98 individuals controlled something like 90% of the world's wealth. It's down to 16. 16. Um, and I, that, that was going on, I read that, and I had had a conversation with somebody who was in finance and was talking about the collapse in 2008, 2009, and how basically the work that was done to keep the economy, the global economy from collapsing, people had no idea, like how close it had come to needing to stock up on ham and beans, you know, pork and beans and, 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 and ammunition. And I had a realization, I was like, oh, oh, that's the apocalypse. The, the apocalypse is going to be financial. It's going to be an economic apocalypse. And that's how you get to Lazarus. That's how you get to neo-feudalism and so on. Um, When I pitched it to Michael, he was like, that's what I want to draw. So we did that, and that sort of opened the floodgates. Because I had done stuff at Oni. In theory, Oni Press work at that time was creator-owned, but... Um, Oni never paid terribly well. And what Image allowed me to do, and Michael to do, was actually get, you know, the book is not setting the world on fire, but it sells well enough that we can make a living off it. Um, And the second that happens, you're like, oh, I can do that with other books. I have other ideas. Let's let's see if this will work here. And the liberation that comes from not having editorials say, you can't do that. Well, we can do whatever the hell we want. It's ours. It's ours. So, yeah. Yeah. Now, and, and I mean, Lazarus is actually probably my favorite work of yours, although I now feel a bit bad about that because, as you say, it is pretty bleak and you're going, we but actually should over. be having these. No, no, but it's not over. And this is the Look. thing about Lazarus, right? It, it is, you know, Michael used to say we started it was dystopian science fiction, now it's a documentary. <laughs> um, <laughs> And he's not too wrong, but Lazarus isn't over. And, you know, there's something to be said for killer cure. You know, sometimes the way you break the fever is get into the tub full of ice. And and maybe you don't get out of the tub. Maybe you do. So, you know, Lazarus is, we, we are... We're on the last act now. There are only going to be 12 to 14 more issues. They should hopefully start coming out in early 2024. 
They will come out monthly with the trade break. They will be back to 24 pages of story instead of this quarterly format. Um, but yeah, we're, we're, we're going to end it. Um, I think for better or worse, when all is said and done, Lazarus is going to be like the, the, the career magnum opus. You know, it'll be the thing. It'll be the work. Um, which is not to say I'll, and then I'll hang up my spurs and go fishing for the rest of my life or anything. But it is to say I don't see myself taking on a project that large ever again. Mm. So. Well, there you go. I guess for those of you who were looking for sort of the what is the news aspect that comes out of here, oh, yeah. you know, we've, there you we've, go. we've got the Lazarus bit, and uh, you know, for for me, I'd sort of had a list of questions I wanted to get to, and, and naturally, <laughs> and we've had a conversation instead, which is <laughs> so much better, but. Before we, we finish up, I just wanted to, to end with one last one. Yeah. Um, so outside of pretty much having read most of your work, you know, I, I only do the finest research outside of that, <laughs> which is, of course, you go to Wikipedia. Yes, and, and absolutely to be trusted. Yes. The great thing that stood out to me there was it's under, uh, you know, personal interests, and then a one little yes, piece of work that you had done that um, I had missed which uh, it says you're really into role-playing games. Oh, yeah, huge. And, and <laughs> so I want to hear about that, but also I saw this thing that you did a little story once for Knights of the Dinner Table. I did do a story for Knights of the Dinner Table. Deep if like, you're into role-playing games. Yeah, no, that is deep nerd. That is deep nerd. Um, <laughs> and, 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 and Jolly and those guys didn't know who the hell I was, which made it even better. Um, yeah, I'm a huge tabletop role-playing gamer. I... Um, I think as a recreational tool, as a device to hone narrative chops, as a means to learn how to navigate life, a good role-playing game brings it all. It's interesting, you know, cognitively they've done studies that um, when, for instance, we go to the theater or go to the movies or we read a novel, when we, when we ingest these things on some level cognitively, they are happening to us. We are witness to it. Um, by that narrative extension, there's a reason why... Who here is a tabletop role player? Just raise your hands high. Be proud. All right. <laughs> and how many of you have been caught guilty of telling somebody who has no interest whatsoever what your character did? Yeah, and the reason you do that is because it really happened. You had this very important, special, wonderful thing happen. You did kill the dragon, or you did save the prince, or whatever, right? Or the emotional, it happened to you. And that's, that's a, you know, I mean, that's, man, that's, that's the purpose of art right there. To make you feel something. And if you can, in the relative safety of a group of friends around the table with some dice, experience acute racism and also the, uh, the power fantasy of then curb stomping the son of a bitch who did it, that's therapy, baby. That's, that's, that, that's a learning experience and there's something to it. Mm -hmm. And... Um, yeah, it's funny because, you know, when I was 
14, 15, playing D&D, I was like, man, it'd be great if you could do this for a living and talk about being born too late. Mm. Man, you know, now it's like Critical Role and Dimension yeah. 20. These guys are everywhere. It's like, man, I wish I'd figured that out. Man, the technology hadn't existed at the time. But yeah, I'm a huge gamer. Huge gamer. I could ask I'm in, I'm in four play-by-post games right oh. now on Discord. Four of them. One of them's been going on for eight years. Um, yeah, no, it's at me. That, <laughs> See, this you, is... Do not come at me about my cred. I've got, I've got, I've got legit cred. <laughs> this is great fertile territory, though. I wish we had time to explore, but unfortunately, we, well, well we are... I will, I will leave you with this teaser. Oh. Uh, of those four, um, all of them a lesbian. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, that was good. That was good, though. That was really good, uh, and also not really a stretch. <laughs> um, of the four. In all four, I am playing with two of my best friends in the world, who I met via Twitter, who live in Melbourne and Sydney, respectively. So, there you go. Yeah. Wow. It's their damn fault. <laughs> yeah. Well, as Greg had neatly said before, you know, he was talking about the uh, learning experience and therapy, and I'm kind of hoping that today's session has been that for, <laughs> for Greg and sure, for all for of me, you. Was therapeutic. And uh, yeah. that uh, you enjoyed the uh, yeah. discussion and that you have a, a great uh, end of the, the festival. The, Thank you. The worst part of this would be, yes, they all now need therapy. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have uh, Lazarus Patches, if uh, people would like Lazarus Patches. Uh, oh, so. okay. <laughs> I, I had meant to bring these up yesterday for a signing, and I completely forgot. So, uh, but I have Carlisle and Dagger patches. So please come and get some if you want some. Oh, cool. Yeah. Okay. And let's thank you. say thank you to you.